Hey there, welcome to night school. 204 now, I believe. 204. And it's 11.16 at night on Thursday. And, uh, you know, I should be playing my video game. I should be playing my game. I'm nearing the end of it, but I always have this issue with video games. On the rare occasion that I play them these days, I'll often get near the end and then just not seal the deal. It's happened to me with books, too, where you'll get near the end and you just never end up finishing it. It's almost like you don't want to finish it. I don't know if there's any Psych 101 explanation for why people don't beat the game. I'm sure that's a thing now. I worked for a mental health company, a company that did marketing for mental health professionals, and one of the clients we had was actually a guy who specialized in gamers and nice guys. And if you're not familiar, nice guys refers to a certain sort of, uh, usually an awkward young man who usually is pretty involved in the internet or video games and is very nice to women and doesn't succeed with them and then has a, there's a stereotype that the nice guy, when he gets rejected or when he finds out the girl just has no interest in him, he'll snap back with something misogynistic or just nasty. I don't think that's always the case. I mean, it's. I think as that term has evolved and it's become kind of a, a part of, I don't know if you'd say pop culture. I mean, it was. it's well known enough to where a therapist specialized in it which I think says something, and most people know what that refers to when they hear nice guy. But typically it's associated with this kind of underlying misogyny, and I don't know that that's always true. I think the main part of it is it's a certain type of guy who thinks that simply by being passive and nice, girls will like him, when often he doesn't have any of the other qualities that a woman is going to want, that most women are going to want. But anyway, point being that this uh, this therapist, the this client of ours, specialized his his specialty. He said was gamers and nice guys, and a lot of crossover between those categories. So you know, maybe I could go see this guy. Hey, hey, doc! I don't know that he was a doc. He, I don't think he was a psychiatrist, which I think makes someone a doctor. I think he was just a psychologist not a psychiatrist, uh, but let's call him Doc anyway, because any man who specializes in helping, in professionally helping gamers and nice guys, to me, is a doctor. He's an honorary doctor. Any, any man who would help a gamer is an honorary doctor, as far as I'm concerned. We also had a lady who, a client of ours, and she uh, dealt with bronies. I'm not even kidding. These were ultra-niche mental health professionals, and there were others too, but those stood out. Gamers, nice guys, and bronies. But uh, anyway, I'm going to go to this guy. I'm going to seek this guy out. I've decided that I'm going to go to this therapist. You know, I know we're in a world now where I'm going to have to do it through my computer. I'm going to have to do it through a screen. But even better, what's better than being a gamer, which it feels funny to call myself a gamer, but what's better, you know, than being a gamer and getting help through a screen? Doesn't that kind of make sense? Isn't that the way it should be? It almost turns getting mental health 
you know, consultation into a game unto itself. It's through the screen, too. It's through the computer, too. It's like everything else in my life. It's through the computer. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm going to do that. I'm going to tell him, I'm going to say, Doc, I have this thing where I, I start playing RPGs, and then I, I can just never finish them. I get to the end of the game, and I just never, I never go into the final dungeon. And then uh, enough time passes, and I just kind of let it go, and it never happens. That's going to be what I tell the doctor. And uh, I, don't, I don't know what he's going to write down in his notepad. But anyway, I feel like I should be playing my game, but the last few nights I haven't. And there's so much going on. You know, I think part of it's just going on. I've been doing a lot of thinking. Uh, rather than escaping into a game. And speaking of thinking, speaking of thinking, you know, the reason I'm doing an episode is because I do have some thoughts. And one of the thoughts that I'm thinking about is, you know, the currency of kindness. You know, to me, it's, it's the universal currency of maturity, compassion and kindness. And a strange thing that I started to see, and I, I don't think I'd ever heard of this before. And I keep up on these things. I pay attention to these things. So I feel like it's sort of a, a malignant mutation. I'm sure it was part of the conversation in years past, but it, I started to see it a lot more. And when I say that I, I'm seeing something a lot more, I always try to go with people that I know. Because it's very easy to see obscure things online and think, oh, look at what they think. Look at what they think. Just because you saw it on some random account of a person that doesn't even have a, a real photo of themselves. It's very easy to suddenly turn that into look at what look at what they think. Look at they they think this. When you don't know who that person is, but when you see it coming from people that you know in the flesh, it's an entirely different thing. So I try to reference that when I talk about trends, especially things that you might observe on online or in the media. And one of those was this demonization of kindness. And it's it goes hand in hand with this idea of white silence, which I'll just say right now, I know I've addressed it before, I addressed it a few months ago, but because all these issues are still going on, the whole idea of silence is violence or silence is betrayal, you know, silence is associated with wisdom. And when you have the opportunity to take a moment to silently reflect, your response is always going to be better informed. And when someone demonizes that, when, when you have the, because there are some situations in life where you don't have, you physically don't have the ability to sit and reflect silently on something. I mean, somebody's mugging you, somebody's in your face, you might not have time to silently reflect in that moment. You might have to react in a way that you don't want to, but you might just have to react. But even then, silent reflection, when you do have the opportunity, will help you in those situations. So even if you're forced into a situation where you have to say something now or do something now, those moments where you do silently reflect will kind of give you the ability to respond more rationally in those moments. And I mean, of course, meditation plays a large role. Meditation will help you immensely react and respond even to the most, even to the scariest situations. You know, I, I credit meditation 
with the way that I handled my mom's passing. And I don't just mean the aftermath. I mean the actual getting her to the hospital against her will and being at the hospital and dealing with the uncertainty and, and all of the the chaos of that situation. I I took time to meditate even within that. And the couple years of meditation leading up to that, I know helped me be in the moment and react and respond as best I could. Not, whether it was perfect or not, I don't know. But, you know, it's just that sort of thing where taking the time to silently reflect, whether it's formal meditation or just thinking, just sitting around thinking, just thinking things through, whether it's that or it could be any way that you do it. That's going to better inform the moments when you do have to respond right away. And the thing about this demonization of silence that's a way of bullying you into saying what someone else wants you to say or doing what someone else wants you to do, the thing about that is when you hear that, intu- it doesn't matter who you are, intuitively you know that's wrong. No matter how swept up you are in a certain craze, you know that somebody telling you that taking the time to reflect on something, if you can, and the idea, like I think what goes behind these statements like silence is violence and silence is betrayal, you know, what lies under those when people say them is the idea that you don't have a choice if you care. If, if, you, if you are a, a thinking, breathing person with a heart, you don't have a choice. You don't have time to react. But the reality is you do. The reality is in that moment, you do. And you should take that time. You should find that time if you don't have it. Because you should really know what you're doing before you join a group of people who are angry. Whether you think that they are righteously angry, whether you think that what they're saying is the truth or not, no matter what conclusion you come to, that conclusion is going to be that much more rational and that much more informed, and your intuition is going to be that much more clear on your way to, you know, deciding how you feel about something uh, if you take the time to reflect on it. And I feel like this is just like saying water is wet or the sky is blue, the sky is black. Um, I feel like this is saying, you know, just stating the obvious. The sky is black right now. It's not a joke. It's night. It's 11 o'clock at night. Well, if you actually looked at it, it would be kind of a dark purple with a little bit of blue because I'm, I'm a scientist. Um, I'm a scientist. I'll tell you what color the sky is just by looking at it. Um, but, uh, you know, it is this thing, though, where it seems like this should be obvious, that if you have the opportunity to silently reflect that it can only make you a stronger link in whatever chain you decide to join or not join. You know, it's just that sort of thing. And the idea that demonizing silence, you know, demonizing silence, it's going to help you along your way. It's going to help you come to a conclusion a lot faster. That's the thing is people saying you have to respond and react right now. Well, if demonizing silence is a part of that, if demonizing reflection is a part of that, you're probably going to come to a conclusion quicker. They're right. They're going to help you come to a conclusion quicker, but you're probably going to come to a different conclusion than the one that you're being coerced into coming to. I think that happens a lot, whether you express it or not. I think inside you feel that way. And I'll be really, I'd be really curious to know, you know, inside how a lot of people feel right now, because a lot of people, a lot of people have a desire to be liked. 
you know, people, it's funny whenever people, you hear Batty, I'm playing tug of war with Batty, but it's funny when people talk about how that's so high school. It's so high school. You hear that all the time. Meanwhile, it's, it's in response to things adults do. You'll hear that in response to things that coworkers do, to things groups of friends do. And the reality is it's just what people do. You know, oh, it's so high school. That's the, all that gossip and the popularity contests. It's so high school of you. No, it's just human. People were doing things that would be called, quote unquote, high school in that pejorative sense. People were doing that when I was in like first grade. I remember one time in kindergarten, not just why, why, why stop at first grade? In kindergarten, these two girls I knew, and I feel like I've told this story before, so it sounds like it really had an impact on me, but it did in a way. These two girls I knew who were really nice girls. Like, these weren't girls with, with an attitude problem. These were girls that I knew their families, and they were really nice. One of their families was actually really close to mine. And we did a... We had to color in a sheet of paper with different objects on it in kindergarten with our crayons, with our crayons. And... Uh, one of the things was a school bus, and the idea was that you were supposed to, you were supposed to I think it said, like, color this in yellow. I don't know if we could read or anything yet. Hear that? That's his tug-of-war growl. I don't know if we could read yet, but it was like the idea was you color in these things the color they're supposed to be. And I don't know if I did it because I didn't have a yellow crayon or if I was just going with the way that school buses actually look, but I colored in my school bus orange. And, of course, like most people colored it in bright, because you know what a yellow crayon looks like. It's just straight up yellow. And I colored mine in orange. But the reality is, I don't know what buses are like around the country, but the buses we have here are closer to an orange color. Even though there's this whole idea, like there's these like these sing-alongs about, you know, the yellow school bus. And we hear that. It's a, a, a pop culture phrase that there's a, that school buses are yellow. Many of them in this area, as long as I've been around, are more of an orange tone. They're kind of a mix. They're kind of yellowy orange, but I would say they're more orange than they are yellow. Just my opinion. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't remember what was going through my brain, but I colored in the school bus orange. And I heard these two girls talking. I think this is the first time I ever remember somebody talking about me behind my back. And I heard it. And they... I heard this girl say to the other girl, nice girls. Again, I'm not saying these are mean girls by any means. And the, the one of them said to the other, did you see Eric? Eric's uh, school bus? He colored it in orange. And I was like, whoa. It didn't hurt my feelings, but it, it just kind of confused me. That it mattered to them. And of course, I talk about all kinds of like neurotic things that don't matter to anybody. I understand. I gossip. I say say shit, you know. But it just it stood out to me because I was just like, they're gossiping about what color I colored that school bus. Even though I think I'm still I'm right. Like the school buses are more of an orange color. So not only did I feel right, I felt like you know. So it was this weird. I mean, it was the first time I was ever gaslit. They were gaslighting me. The school buses in our school district, in this state, are more of an orange color. And they saw that, and but you, because you're supposed to color it in yellow, yellow, it was it, it, it stood out to them, and uh, they gaslit me in kindergarten. And that's very high school of them. Very oh, I, 
I thought you would have outgrown this in high school. Oh wait, you you're, you won't be in high school for another ten years. That's still that's so high school of you, kindergartners. Uh, but no, it's always funny when adults say that about people about drama in their their social circle as adults. They'll be like, "That's so high school," and it's like people don't seem to really outgrow. It just seems to be a human thing, and just some people stop doing those things. Some people stop trying to be cool. They stop trying to smear other people at a certain point just through their own personal evolution. With some people, they're, they're naturals, and they outgrow that very early, or they never even go through that phase. They're enlightened from birth. Um, but other people, you know, they might come to that realization while they're in high school, while other people don't figure it out ever. Some people figure that out on their deathbed. And I'm not even joking. I mean, I, I started to say that as a joke, and then I realized it's true. There are some people who, when they're dying, they suddenly realize that all that bullshit they focused on was truly bullshit. But, um, you know, so it's funny when people say something is high school, just, you know, because it just seems to happen all the time anyways. Before high school, after high school, really. High schoolers have really been uh, given this bad rap. People have been very high school about the way they talk about high schoolers. Oh, so you you think that all this drama, all this drama and gossip, you think it, oh, only high schoolers do it. That's very high school of you to think that. See, I'm doing it too. The cycle never ends. Can't escape. Can't escape. Because, well, I mean, it, there really is no escape with that stuff. As I've mentioned before, when you partake in gossip... You know, you feel it intuitively that you're doing something wrong. You you leave a gossip session feeling feverish and sick. And you intuitively know that you were doing something you shouldn't do. Not because the gossip itself was necessarily harmful to anybody, but it was harmful to you and to the other people gossiping. And you don't want to be part of a social group where that's the currency. And it's not just limited. It's kind of like people demonizing high schoolers over those that kind of behavior. You know, there's a tendency to demonize women and think that it's something that women do because women are more socially engaged and interested in other people. And as a result, you know, there is a malignant side. I mean, there's the positive side of that is they really care about other people. Women on the whole really just are, they, they have a, a compassion that I don't think men naturally have when it comes to like everything that's going on with everybody they know. It's not that men don't have compassion. It's not that all women are exactly the same or all men are exactly the same, if I even need to say that. It's just that I think women naturally are more interested in people. And the positive side of that, the positive side of that coin, you know, I think every impulse has, you know, a heads and a tails to it. And in that case, you know, that side of women that is interested and engaged with what's going on with people, they'll talk about the accomplishments of people in a way that my, my friends, my male friends, and I would never do. Oh, did you hear that she got into that college? Oh, did you hear that Mary and, and Sam's daughter got into that college? That's amazing. You know, she got, did you hear that she made the honor roll? Like, I, I've heard women talk about things like that, and I can't imagine sitting around... You know, you might be, I mean, you might talk to your friends and be like, oh, yeah, you, uh, you see the spiral on that ball that he, you see that spiral on that football that he threw? Did you hear that album he made? You know, you'll compliment people, but it's just, it's very different in my experience. Having had close women friends and male friends, I've picked up on the difference. 
And um, so it's, it, you know, it's kind of unfair that people tend to think of gossip and drama as exclusively female. But it does, you know, there's also a reason why that's the stereotype, too, because because women are much more socially engaged on the whole. And of course, someone will be like, I'm not, I'm a woman and I'm not. But, you know, I think just observation and experience and we'll, we'll tell you that women are more socially interested in people. Um, and as I'm saying, for, the, for better and worse, and the worst side of that is that gossipy side of it. Um, and that's not, I don't think that's socially conditioned. I don't think that's forced on anybody. I don't think that's engineered. There might be a little bit of that, but I think it comes from some natural place. I mean, there's this idea that everything is conditioned. Everything is socially conditioned. It's like, well, where does the initial impulse come? I think it's a combination of some sort of natural impulse combined with... It's, it's self-reinforcing. It comes from someplace natural, and then it's reinforced by society. Uh, but I'm always perplexed by this idea that people have that society is some sort of supernatural force that creates all of our impulses and all of our ideas out of thin air. It reinforces things, but it, it doesn't create them. Uh, but anyway, uh, long story short, I'm, I feel like I'm making a disclaimer, but it, the reality is men do it too. And that's the point I'm making. In the same way that we kind of demonize high schoolers as these popularity-seeking drama kings and queens, we have a tendency to think of women doing that, too. We have a tendency to think of women, old biddies, being gossips. And the reality is men do it, but men just do it a little differently. Uh, men have their own way of doing it. And I think they are a little more reluctant to openly engage in it. Uh, which is why it kind of happens one-on-one -on -one in my experience, where a guy will say something and you say something, and you end up gossip. You end up realizing you're gossiping, and you're like, "Oh, it's when you get that feeling again, where you're just like, oh, I shouldn't be doing this.' But it's a little bit different, you know. The kinds of things men gossip about are a little bit different, so they can easily trick themselves into believing they're not gossiping when they actually are doing that very thing. But, uh, you know, just the whole reason I went on that tangent is just popularity and seeking the approval of your peers. You want to be thought of as cool. And, you know, yesterday on the mobile episode, the mobile episode, I was talking about people starting families and how when, when I see people I know start families, I notice that they generally have less concern about the things that they used to rely on for excitement. Their goals shift. Even if they still do the things they did and care about the things they, they did, their goals have rightfully shifted. And it's the same for people who have just kind of moved on, who've gone down a certain path, who have developed spiritually, maybe. Or, you know, gotten deep into a career, for that matter. Just anything that's distracted them from the things that were important to them as, say, a teenager or in their early 20s. For one, they don't seem to have as much of a desire to be cool. And maybe I'm wrong about that. I think I might be wrong about that. Because I, I know there's a lot of parents who are still desperate to be cool. Um... But I think the point stands that sometimes when you when you have a major life-changing event or you go down the path that your life is supposed to go down, you do care less about appearing cool to your peers 
Whereas when you're still caught up in the same things, when your world hasn't shifted, I think you continue to try to gain acceptance through this abstract idea of coolness. This abstract idea of coolness. And we're seeing that right now politically, where I know that many people gravitate towards certain political and social ideas because it is popular with their peers and they want to be thought of as cool. Because the reality is, there's not that much that's cool in a pop culture sense or in in an underground sense, in a subversive sense. There's not much that's you would describe as cool or hip about being right-wing. And they do manage to tap into that. There are elements that I think you would say are hip. Uh, but uh, it's kind of what the alt-right was, which most people don't understand. And I don't, I don't say that condescendingly, but that people didn't know what it was when that phrase got introduced. So their entire idea of it is very different from what it was. And I'm not a fan of it. You know, I'm, I, I can't say I'm a fan of what the alt-right actually is, nor am I a fan of the, the way that people perceive it. So I'm not a defender of it either way. And I don't say that to make myself cool or popular. I just say it because it, it just didn't necessarily speak to me. But I am more familiar with what, where it came from, I guess. And but and aside from that though, which even that isn't necessarily going to make it's definitely not going to make you popular to be into that stuff. Uh, but it did manage to tap into a little more of some sort of you know young male culture. It appealed to young men, uh, and, I, and I don't even know what the state of that is now. Uh, the, the term was just uh, it was very relevant a few four years ago, and then it just became this catch-all for anything that the left didn't like. You know, like they're referring to, I remember like hearing the left refer to like old right wing men as alt right. And I'm just like, where are you even coming from? Um, but uh, anyway, you know, the left has a major, what do you call it? They have a major, I was going to say a copyright. It's not the word I'm looking for. They just have a grip on both the pop culture, the art, the arts. Basically, arts and culture belong exclusively to the left. And it's not entirely true, but the left does absolutely dominate those fields. And as a result, you know, being on the left is considered cool. And people who are on the left would say, yeah, I want to be cool by being on the left because that is what's cool. It's not just that I want to be cool, it's that that itself is what is cool. Those values are cool. And I understand that way of thinking. I understand the idea that uh, what people think they are fighting for is what's cool. Human rights, justice, those things are cool. I agree with that 100%. Of course, it gets twisted. It's that two sides of the same coin idea again. Um. You know, in the same way that the Jungian archetype has a positive and a negative manifestation, it's true for every belief, which is why I can identify with aspects of the left. It's why I can identify with aspects of the right without feeling a sense of belonging to either one. And the result that I have is simply compassion. 
Because when you can identify with something but not belong to it, not feel a sense of belonging to that thing, what you are left with is compassion. It's not compassion if you belong to something and support it. If you're like, oh, I like that person and I support them because I belong to them, I, I'm, I'm the same as them, that's not compassion to me. I mean, people destroy people who are the same as them. I mean, there's a lot of infighting. There's a lot of people eating their own. And uh, that's another example of that dark side of the coin. You heard of the dark side of the moon? Well, this is the dark side of the coin. (laughs) I love that. The dark side of the coin. Um, But that's what it is. In the same way that, you know, women can be very compassionate and caring about people in their community, people in their extended network. Um, They can also be gossips, and that's the dark side of the same coin. And you see it with the left, too, where the left is focused on human rights and justice and helping people. But that has its own dark side of the coin as well. But anyway, to get back to compassion... You know, compassion isn't true compassion to me if it's based exclusively on people who, if, if it's, ba- you know, if it's directed only toward people who agree with you. Oh, I'm really compassionate about people who agree with me, who go up and down the checklist and we mark all the same boxes. Oh, I'm such a compassionate person because I care about people who are exactly like me. That's not real compassion. Real compassion is looking at somebody and saying, I can identify certain human tendencies and qualities that I relate to in that person or that group, but I don't identify completely with them. I don't feel a sense of belonging, like we are the same or we are part of the same thing, but yet I still care about them. That is what is compassionate, and it's something that is lacking in politics. It's lacking absolutely on the the left and the right extremes. Uh, these people who are just filled with misanthropy. You know, they're just filled with misanthropy. And there's very little compassion. You know, misanthropy is the antithesis of compassion. <laughs> Which, again, water is wet. Water is wet. And, you know, misanthropy is the antithesis of compassion. But, you know, I... I I'm really happy because I've actually made it back to the original thought I had when I wanted to record an episode tonight, which is the innovation that is compassion, because it's still innovative. But when I think about that initial spark, that initial moment of compassion between two human beings that occurred whenever whenever it happened, I mean, that's the funny thing is we're... You know, I always make fun of scientists for being like, we figured out that the universe started here. The big banger. The big banger started here. We know how the, hey guys, we know how the entire galaxy started. You know, we know how the entire, we found out how the entire, how the entire galaxy started. You know, you hear that and uh, people are like, yeah, we, we figured it out. The big banger. The Big Bang energy drink. Um, you know, we, we say that, and then we, you know, we make statements. You know, we, I, I do this. No, but, you know, we as a species, our scientists, I have compassion for scientists. Uh, they make statements about the universe expanding and contracting, these very outlandish statements, which I believe they have a reason for believing that. It's not that I dismiss 
the work they've done to try to understand these things that we haven't even touched, <laughs> you know, from from before we even existed. You know, I, I respect their attempts to understand that, and I'm not going to say that they. I'm not going to say that they're even wrong. I don't even know. I just don't know. Uh, I don't have... My intuition tells me nothing about that. My intuition has told me nothing about how the universe started or whether the universe is expanding or contracting. I personally believe that when you lie, the universe shrinks a little bit. Your own personal universe definitely shrinks when you tell a blatant lie. And when you tell the truth, my belief is that the universe expands... It certainly feels that way inwardly. When you tell the truth, it, it feels like a lot more opportunities are open to you. And not just because it's the morally right thing to do. It just really feels like your insides have expanded. And in an as above, so below sense, the universe probably works the same way, where truth expands the entire universe. It expands your own individual universe, and it probably expands the whole universe because your own internal universe is part of that whole universe. So simply you feeling more expansive by telling the truth rather than feeling more constricted by lies, you know, feeling that expansion within can only expand that which is without and around you. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know about this Big Bang Theory, but I'll tell you about how telling the truth will expand you, the entire universe. So, you know, I'm guilty of it, too. But that's my intuition tells me that, whereas my intuition tells me nothing about how the universe started. <laughs> you know, so I'm not I don't dismiss the Big Bang Theory or not. But but anyway, it's funny to me that we think we have that figured out, that we even think we have an idea. We think that the universe started this way or the, whatever it is, the galaxy. I don't even know what it is they think started a certain way. Um, but it's funny to me that we believe that, that we believe we know how the, it all started, how the universe started, yet nobody can tell you the first instance of a human displaying compassion for another human being. Nobody can tell you where in history humans started exhibiting you know, sort of an intellectual kindness to each other, a deliberate kindness to those that aren't their own. I mean, we can understand, you know, you have to figure that like a mother was kind to her child or two mates were kind to each other early in our development. You have to figure it was always there on a just functional level. You have to figure there's always been kindness and compassion in any given species, we see it in animals. We see animals be kind and compassionate toward one another, or even in some cases toward other animals, which is amazing. And we shouldn't take that for granted when we see it. We should notice that. Even if it means subscribing to, like, animal video, you know, feeds, notice that stuff. That's important. That expands the universe. It's going to be my new... You know, other people say silence is violence in, in order to coerce them into believing the same thing. I'm just going to say, believe this and you'll expand the entire universe. Believe what I tell you to believe and you'll make that universe even bigger. Um, uh, but it's, it's fun, just funny to me that like we know all this stuff about the universe or the origin of the universe, but we can't really tell people anything about our origins you know yeah we have some idea of that we evolved from this and, and you know there's a story there and it is a story 
But when it comes to certain human interactions, you know, not just that natural kindness that exists between a mother and her child, but when a human being deliberately showed compassion for another human being, especially if they came from a different tribe, especially if there was an opportunity for conflict, if there was a motivation for conflict and two human beings chose compassion, that's the real big bang, as far as I'm concerned. That's the bigger bang. You know, because that's hard to believe. It's hard to believe that that even happened. And it's hard to believe when you think about what's going on right now, where you can see that these primitive people likely did that. And it carried on. Like, somebody did that, and somebody thought that was a good idea. There was no doubt somebody who said, there was no doubt somebody who got the news in their cave and said, Oh, did you hear Jerry? Uh, He chose not to club that guy who lives down the river. He didn't club him. The guy, the guy reached down and he caught the fish that Jerry was going to catch, and Jerry didn't club him over the head. He's going to be the end of us all. How come he didn't club him? They're, they're going to take advantage of us. Those, those people who live down the river, they're going to catch all of our fish, all because of freaking Jerry. Because he doesn't, he don't got, the thing about Jerry is he don't got no backbone. You know, somebody was saying that. Somebody was saying, oh, Jerry, he's a fence-sitter. Oh, Jerry, he's a centrist. He let the guy from the other tribe catch a fish from our pond. You know, there's no doubt people back then who saw compassion and thought, oh, how dare you? How dare you? You're You're not on our side. Jerry's not on our side anymore, guys. Jerry the caveman... Uh, but there were no doubt other people who, who saw what Jerry did, and this has now become history. As I've been explaining this, this is now the big banger. The bigger bang, excuse me. The bigger bang is now fact, as far as I'm concerned, and that's the moment that Jerry the caveman showed compassion for a caveman down the river who wasn't part of his group. And other cavemen noticed And word spread that you can show compassion, and it might actually serve you as well as others. It might not be just laying down and letting people walk all over you. It might be something that actually serves a greater good that includes you and everyone else. And so those ideas catch on. People notice. People notice kindness. People notice compassion. And... I guess I'm so impressed by the idea that that happened, whether it was just a natural function or whether it was something that some early ancestor of ours deliberately did. It doesn't really make a difference because the fact is is that others decided to do it. We still do it. We can, we can still do it. And it's that much more of an innovation. You know, you think about all this technology, but just as a... You know, just a, I don't even want to call it intellectual. I don't want to make it academic, but just as a thought. I guess it is intellectual because it's a thought. Just the idea that that thought existed in somebody is a huge innovation. It's like if you've ever, if you've ever heard, you know, anthropologists talk about, you know, the origins of trade. It's the same thing. I mean, you have to have compassion in order to make a fair deal in a trade. 
And, you know, I recommend looking into that. I don't really know all the facts, but it's just, you know, and again, like they don't, they just really don't know. They don't know how the initial people traded, but the fact that they were able to arrange a trade and they were both able to honor the deal. And who knows how many deals were broken before that, but the first good deal where everybody left feeling like they got what they wanted, innovation is what that is. And it's the same thing for compassion. And I think the first fair deal, the first good deal, would have required the innovation of compassion and kindness first. Um, but uh, right now we're seeing what a true innovation that is, and it's one that we have to maintain. It's one, We have to do upkeep on it, because we're seeing where people can lose their compassion so quickly. You know, granted, there's been this raw tension and this agitation. I mean, I feel like living in America the last 10 years has felt like two thighs rubbing against each other raw. You know, it's, it's like if you've been on a walk and you don't even realize it necessarily. Like you kind of know that your underwear isn't really doing what it's supposed to do. And, but you don't really notice it until you go home and then you're just like, man, my thighs, my inner thighs... It's so raw. It kind of feels like living in America has been these two fat thighs. And this isn't an American fat joke. I hate those. I'm just saying, though, it's sort of like uh, like two thighs, you know, two fat thighs rubbing against each other. And when that goes on for long enough, it seems like, you know, the foundation of compassion starts to starts to recede. And then you have a situation like this like we've had in the last few months, the last few years. People who, like I was saying yesterday, whose computers restarted in 2016, and they think that all of this is a product of this America that Trump's radically changed. You know, they think that this all started then. When this is, like I said, these thighs have been rubbing each other raw for far more years than that. And Trump's election was, in many ways, the result of one side of of that rubbing. <laughs> you know, one of those thighs basically got pushed into supporting that guy because of the what the other what they thought the other thigh was doing. I know this is this is going to go over great. This is going to go over great <laughs> with everybody. I think it's how it worked, though. I think it's how it does work. Um, and then now in the last few months where we've seen many of our comforts and our safeguards stripped away, and I'm just taken by how, not just the lack of compassion, I'm not just taken by the lack of compassion and kindness, I'm taken by the severity of people's hatred. That's what gets me. It's not just the loss of compassion. It's not the indifference. It's not the ambivalence. It's the full-on hatred. It's the voice of that caveman screaming, you see what Jerry did? Oh, Jerry. You know, it's that same voice. And it's coming from all directions. And the people who are on the extremes, the people who are on those poles, those polar extremes... They're not big fans of compassion. They think they're compassionate because they're compassionate toward people who 
they feel a sense of belonging with. But as I was saying, that's not real compassion. Real compassion requires you to look beyond your sense of belonging. And um, that's what's dropped away. And it was there. You know, I think it's always, I think that kind of general compassion, that total compassion, is always in a precarious position. It's always on, it's always balancing, you know, on a very small wedge. And it has a chance of tipping over or falling down. But I do think it's there. It's been there throughout most of my life. I mean, the fact that we haven't had a situation like this in my lifetime, even with previous riots, even with previous protests, even with people not agreeing with each other. It's never been like this. And that shows me, though, that no matter how early this innovation happened in the human timeline, no matter when it was that Jerry the caveman figured out that he could be compassionate and it would have a benefit to him and everyone around him, no matter when that happened, you can see that it's not quite secure. It is That compassion is not quite secure despite how long it's been around and how quickly it can fall away. I mean, some of the behavior I'm seeing, I don't want to go into it. You know, I don't want to go into some of the behavior I'm seeing because it's, it's pretty evident if you, I don't know, I think it's funny, like, for as much as some people put, like, Maya Angelou on this pedestal and quote her, there's this quote from her that's a cliche, and it's, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it doesn't, people won't remember what you said, it'll be how, something like, at the end of the day, nobody will remember what you said, only how you made them feel, that's paraphrasing it, I think, and it's this famous quote from Maya Angelou, and I can't believe I'm quoting Maya Angelou, but it's very true, and I sometimes try to come from the perspective of, if people couldn't understand my language and could only pick up the tone of what I'm saying, and I think in this case, on the show today, you know, if you could only hear the tone, you might think that I'm being hateful. You might think that I'm angry when I'm not. I'm just, I care, you know. Uh, Hopefully they would just hear this and be like, oh, this guy cares. I don't know what he's saying, but he cares. Hopefully they wouldn't think, oh, I don't understand what he's saying, but he's clearly a misanthrope. Um, But there's that quote from her, and I think about it when people are screaming slogans, you know, and I'm not talking about any specific slogans even, just anybody who's screaming a slogan, anybody who's waving something in somebody else's face. You know, that's a great example of it's not what you're saying, it's how you're making people feel. And what I'm seeing is that people aren't concerned with how they're making people feel. They don't seem to actually care. They're so caught up in moral righteousness. They're so caught up in demonizing those who don't agree with them. They don't even care how they make everyone feel. They feel so right. They feel so cool. I refuse to let go of that because I think that needs to be brought up again and again that so many people want to be liked and they want to be hip and they want to be cool. 
and it's clear what's considered cool and what's not. It's very obvious what the cool choice is. The cool choice. Cool choice. And uh, it's so it's it's the desire to be liked, the desire to be cool with certain groups of people, and the desire to be morally righteous without silent reflection, without deep consideration, it seems. I don't want to make assumptions. I mean, I know some people deeply consider things and come to different conclusions than I come to. I can accept that. Silence reflection. Silent reflection can lead you different places based on who you are, based on what you see, based on how you feel. Silent reflection can lead you to different places in the same day as the same person. I always say on here that some days I wake up with one opinion and I go to bed and I wake up the next day with a different opinion. I go to bed again and I wake up with that other opinion and it just kind of goes from there. It just really depends on just how I'm feeling that day sometimes. You know, it just, it, it kind of, it's flip, you know, I'm a flip-flopper. I readily admit it. I don't I'm not two-faced, I'm a thousand-faced. I feel different things on different days and I think in the greater stream in which all this stuff flows, I think that I'm hopefully more consistent than I am not. I don't consider myself just an out-and-out hypocrite. But my opinions do fluctuate, and I think it's more the severity. It's the severity. The severity. It's more the severity of what I feel that fluctuates more than even my stance or my core opinions. It's more just how deeply, how much I care at any given time. But it's important for me not to do anything because I seek acceptance. You know, I used the example yesterday of during the 2016 election, right afterward, donating to an organization that I thought I could tell my girlfriend about in order to get her off my back. And it didn't work. You know, she saw through it. And I, I've tried to do things like that before. Not exactly that. Definitely not that. But, you know, I've said and done things that I don't wholly agree with because I just wanted someone to... Not like me, but just, I don't know, maybe just to, just because I thought it would make things easier, maybe. I think a lot of people do that in relationships. You know, it's one reason why I'm grateful that I'm not in a relationship right now, because I think there is this pressure. There's a pressure to see eye to eye about everything. And uh, if you have somebody, an intimate in your life, it's very easy to feel that pressure to, oh, we can't possibly disagree about the nuances of this given subject, this crazy thing that's actually not a direct part of our lives. Who knew we might have slightly different opinions or we might feel slightly different things. And then you add in the fact that I know I'm not alone in that the severity of how I feel about a given subject fluctuates sometimes within the same day. Sometimes the, from the time I wake up in the morning to the time I go to bed, I feel differently about something that I'm thinking about. And sometimes that's because I have taken the time to do silent reflection. And sometimes I feel both those things at the same time. And I think my brain is more than capable of holding those things at the same time and saying, you know what, I do have conflicting feelings on this. 
And in thinking that, you might come to the realization that they're not conflicting after all. They're actually what it means to have a whole opinion on something. It just means that you have a range. And that's what a Zen koan is. You know, it's, it's thinking about something that seems hypocritical. It seems dissonant. It seems like some sort of... Um, two things cannot possibly go together. Two lines of logic that are disruptive if you hold them together. And if you meditate on them, you know, it's, it's the reason why Zen koans are constructed the way they are, because if you meditate on them, if you think about them, you might realize that they don't matter, for one. You might realize that these things aren't important enough to even be a contradiction, and you can let go of them. Or you might realize that you can still hold on to them, and they aren't as dissonant or contradictory as you thought. You just had to climb up another rung on the ladder and look at them from a slightly larger point of view. You, maybe you needed to get in an, a UFO and go all the way up there with the virgin alien monks and look down and be like, oh, okay, I see those two things that I thought were totally at war with each other, that were just fundamentally incapable of harmonizing, are actually part of the same process. I mean, there's a reason why the yin-yang is just the, the stereotypical symbol of all this. You know, there's a reason why the yin-yang is the, the pop culture representation of Eastern spirituality. Because that's the perspective you get when you climb another rung or you hop into the UFO and you get that just amazing view from up top. You realize that these things aren't fundamentally different and they're part of the same process. And they're part of an even larger process. And they all have a function. They all have a, a function that is especially beneficial when there's a balance. When there's compassion. But, um, you know, silent reflection... I think anytime somebody tells you that silent reflection is somehow nefarious, I think that should give you, I mean, alarm bells should go off immediately. Not that that person is necessarily the best representative of whatever it is they're speaking on behalf of, but when an entire movement tells you that being silent is actually the complete opposite of silence, which is violence. The least silent action you can take is a violent action. And so for somebody to say that silent reflection is somehow the worst possible thing you can do to another person, that should immediately raise some alarm bells. And it's one thing if one person says that to you, but when an entire movement takes on that way of thinking, that should really tell you something, that something is not right. And that doesn't mean the whole of it is wrong. It just means that something with the way that this, something, with, something within this is malignant. 
And you shouldn't react too quickly to that. You know, even if you recognize the malignance, you shouldn't, uh, you should, you should reflect on that. You know, that's the, the thing about silently reflecting is that silently reflecting can help you make a realization. But after you make that realization, you might need to do, do more thinking about that. And yeah, you can end up thinking forever. You can end up reflecting forever and doing nothing. But to me, that's a better option than jumping into something just because you want acceptance or you simply want to survive. Because that's a big part of this, too, is there are some people who buy into certain ideas or they're easily manipulated into behaving and acting a certain way because they think they won't survive otherwise. They won't survive socially. They won't literally physically survive. Their families won't survive. They, some people get coerced into things for that reason. And being cool is kind of part of survival. You know, if you don't feel cool, if you don't feel liked, I mean, there's a party that kind of wants to die. <laughs> you know, that, that's why people want to feel cool. You know, it's like a baby who gets shunned will develop, you know, uh, it just creates a, a pathology. It's like an animal who gets neglected. Anything that gets neglected, you know, it ends up worse off for it. And so people fear that neglect. They, they kind of think of be, not being cool as a form of neglect, which it kind of is, you know, except when you realize that being cool isn't necessarily what it appears to be. And I don't need to tell I don't need to teach anybody about that. I don't need to teach anybody about what's cool or what's not because that would just me beat that would me <laughs> I can't even say it. That would be me playing the same game that I'm talking about. And I don't think your intuition plays that game. You know, it's the classic story of the teenager. Let's go back to high school in this conversation. It's the classic story of the teenager who's going along with the cool crowd, with the kids that they think are popular. Or they, they make the kid feel cool, but they're getting that kid into trouble. They're taking that kid down a bad road. And sometimes you need to go down that road. And you end up stronger for it. But uh, you also deep down often know that this is not the right thing. I have, you know, I've had those moments in adulthood where I've had sudden realizations where I'm like, oh, this is a cautionary tale. I'm hanging out with the wrong people. This isn't the kind of living I'm meant to be doing. You know, just so it's not just the teenager who has that feeling when they're smoking a cigarette with their. The, you know, it's not just the teenager who's cutting class so they can smoke cigarettes in the alleyway behind the mall. And they realize, oh, this is what my parents warned me about. But I want to be cool. It's not just that. It's, it's also when you're an adult. You can find yourself looking around and thinking, oh, boy, I'm here. I'm here. You know, that's happened to me. I wouldn't be here if I hadn't had those moments. But kindness and compassion... That's an innovation that you should do everything to maintain. And I guess that was another thing I wanted to say, is that it's not just this idea of silence being somehow a tool of the oppressor. 
which it can be. It's not like that idea is totally, it's not like that is total nonsense, you know. Uh, people ignoring injustice is a problem. But to say that any kind of silence or any kind of reflection, any kind of, you know, any kind of inaction that, or, you know, not even inaction, just any kind of behavior that doesn't, you know, tap immediately into this thing that somebody else wants you to do, the idea that that is somehow violence or betrayal, you know, that's just a malignant way of thinking. But the even more malignant things that I've seen said, and again, these, these come from people that I know, real flesh and blood and hair and eyeball people, is that kindness is a tool of the oppressor. I've actually, I've seen these info memes. I don't know what else to call them. They're like these little like info memes that are like trying to put things in your head. And one of them was talking about how, and I've seen it many times from people I know and people I don't know as well, but it just, the reason why it hits close to home is because it comes from people that I know who are real people who I've sat with and spent time with, and it talks about how kindness is a tool of the oppressor. And I just, I do not see the value in that way of thinking. And I've specifically seen the statement that kindness is a tool of white supremacy, that there's this toxic kindness, which is funny, you know, with all the talk of toxic masculinity, finally things got around to calling kindness toxic when it doesn't serve a certain political purpose because that's what that is when you start calling kindness toxic because there really aren't different kinds of kindness yeah there's fake kindness you know there's people who act kind but they're really stabbing you in the back sure but let's just you know give the word kindness the benefit of the doubt and say kindness is the act of being kind not pseudo kindness not kindness with some sort of ulterior motive. Let's just talk about pure kindness and the idea that kindness is somehow not cool. Because that was basically the idea. When you say kindness is the tool of the oppressor, someone might think, oh, you know what? Being kind. If I'm kind, people aren't going to think I'm cool. It's just unbelievable because sometimes being kind isn't the cool thing. I often feel that way on this show. You know, yesterday I started off the episode talking about things I was grateful for, and I didn't feel cool doing that. You know, people, the things that we like, we have such a negativity bias that the things that we value, you know, we don't really like positive art or music or movies. We don't like things that are just a, you know, a trip through the flower garden. We often like stories that involve something negative. We like comedy to be harsh. I mean, on this show, I'm constantly dealing with, you know, my attempts at comedy can, you know, really put people on a grill. And I think that's the joy of comedy is that it allows you to do that. Um, but uh, it's still something that, you know, it's not, I mean, positive humor. What even is that? What is positive comedy? I know what clean comedy is, but it's just by its very nature, there's something comedy kind of chips away at things. It kind of jabs at things. The idea of just totally positive comedy. I'm not even sure how you talk about that. 
Like, what what even is a positive joke? I know they exist, but I just can't even think of them because I'm not a fan of them. Even though I value kindness and compassion, it's not something I'm looking for typically in entertainment or art because it's not really cool, but it's the right thing. And that shows you that the right thing doesn't always feel cool. It's not always what entertains you. Often it's not. Often it's not. I mean, there's a reason why monks live very boring lives by our standards. There's a reason why, you know, there's a reason why, you know, when somebody gets on a positivity kick, why we almost want to get away from them. It's much more fun to gossip. It's much more fun to be cynical. It's much more fun to hate. Except when the other shoe drops and you're sick and it makes you sick because it does. That's why you have to use it very deliberately. That's why you have to use those negative impulses very deliberately if you're going to use them. And you don't have to use them, but I think they will come out one way or another. And it's why... If I'm going to talk shit, I at least try to make it funny. And I'm not perfect about it. But, uh, you know, I do, I still just talk shit sometimes just to talk shit. And, uh, but it's, I try to lean more toward deliberation. So, yeah, you know, kindness and compassion, you know, the second that somebody starts telling you those are wrong or that those somehow contribute to the worst possible things in our world, the worst possible aspects of our society, the most oppressive aspects of our society are fueled by kindness and silence, <laughs> you know, it's just, you know, yeah, yeah, there is a time to fight. There is a time to speak up. There is a time to stand up for other people, stand up for yourself, and you can't always be kind. But the thing is, when you silently reflect, when you use the wisdom of silence, the language of God, which is silence, when you use that, when you act, you know, it's funny to say actively using it, but when you make a choice to use that in your life, to use moments of silence, moments of reflection, the moments when you should or, or can fight for what's right become much more obvious, and they're rare. They're so rare. Because otherwise you become the boy who cried wolf. You know, when, you, when you're noticing things wrong all the time, when somebody's always messing with you, if you have a friend and all they ever talk about is everybody's messing with them. Everybody's always messing with me. You know, it's very easy to like take a step back and be like, maybe you're provoking everybody. Maybe you're messing with everybody. Maybe you're bringing that attitude with you. Maybe you're just seeing things where they don't exist. And the day they come to you and somebody really did mess with them, you're going to see it with a little bit of skepticism because that's what the boy who cried wolf is. Uh, the most obvious story ever. I don't need to explain it to anybody. It's just that when somebody complains about something time and time again, and we see the way it's developed with the current president, Donald Drumsfeld, whatever the hell people call him, you know, um, it's just when you 
point out everything the guy does and you're screaming wolf, there reaches a point where people are just like, I don't even care if there's a wolf. At this point, you know, you've gone so far off the deep end and you've been screaming and pointing your finger so much that a lot of people aren't even going to care if there is a wolf. And that's unfortunate. You know, that's unfortunate. And, you know, it's, but it's just how it works. And it, it goes the opposite, too. Because some people thought that those who were critical of the far left in recent years were crying wolf. And some of them were. But now we're seeing something very destructive going on. Objectively, literally destructive. It doesn't matter whether you think it's justified. If you can't even admit that what the far left is doing, and it's not, the enti- it's not everybody, but it's happening often, often enough and it's severe enough, it's frequent enough, there are enough people that clearly it's a representation of a certain way of thinking, and it is objectively destructive. And again, whether you agree with that destruction or are indifferent toward it is another subject entirely. But what we're seeing is people can't even admit it's destructive. They can't even admit that it is literally physically destructive. I mean, if there's a spider on top of, you know, a a glass bowl in my kitchen and I drop one of my barbells on it to kill the spider and the bowl breaks, I can say I did it because there was a spider on there, but it doesn't change the fact that the bowl broke because of my actions. And somebody can say, well, what kind of spider was it? Was it a black widow? Was it a black widow? You know, it, what, what was it? You know, was, was it a black widow? You know, it, it doesn't matter, really. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter. The bull broke. But, you know, I, I mean, I, I, it's not that it doesn't matter, but it's just like when it comes to like describing the, what happened, you would say you dropped a barbell that weighs 40 pounds on a glass bowl, and it broke. Oh, and you might have killed a spider, but it might have gotten away too. The intention was to kill a spider. But you dropped something heavy on something fragile, and it broke. You can at least describe that objectively, and then you can get into the debate of whether, well, if it was a black widow, you know, I would have done the same thing. or, Or I support that. I would have been too afraid to even get close to the Black Widow. But I'm, I'm sure what you did was the right thing. You know, somebody might say that, or somebody might say, you know what, like, dropping a barbell on a bowl in your kitchen for any reason is never justified. And then someone else might be like, you know, Black Widow or not, every spider, you know, deserves... You should have, you know, you should have scooped it up and put it outside. You should have used compassion on that black widow, and you know, scooped it up and put it outside. Should have put that black widow in a in a cup and put him outside, not smashed things in your kitchen. But anyway, I'm entering a fantasy world. I'm in a fantasy world where I'm just smashing my kitchen with all kinds of things. But, uh, you know, we have to be able to describe things as they are happening and then talk about whether we think it's okay or not. 
But the fact that people can't even talk about what's happening in the same way, and maybe it's because they're not even seeing the same things, and that's scary. I've been thinking a lot about our departure from chronology, where we've relied on chronology our entire lives. I mean, it's really all we have is a chronological, you know, just, you know, our, our history is chronological. The way we live our lives is chronological. We read a book, and in, unless it's some sort of experimental fiction where it's all, like, cut up and rearranged, it's probably going to be a chronological story. And there's been this recent trend, and it, it's not, it didn't come along with the Internet. The Internet, too, was chronological for many years. You go to a message board, an Internet message board, and you're going to see threads they were either started for, you know, the most recently started threads are going to be at the top or the ones with the most recent replies are going to be at the top. They're the, mo- the, the ones that have had the most recent activity are going to be at the top. It was the same thing with the early social media, with a blog, with a blog. You'd go to a blog and you'd see that all the, all the, all the blog posts would be in order of uh, when they were posted. It made sense. The blog posts you're going to see are the blo- are the most recently written blog posts. You would never expect anything else. You know, I remember I had a live journal account for a little while, and when you would go look at your friends' posts, they would appear chronologically, most recent appearing at the top. And there's been this trend though in the last decade or so, and I feel like it's been even less than that. I don't remember when it exactly started happening, and it kind of. It went around with this whole, you know, went along with this whole algorithm. As algorithm has become a household word, you know, more and more of our, more and more of the content, more and more of the information we take in is arranged in these algorithmic ways that are often non-chronological. And we're told that it's based on what we think you want to see. Well, that's called making a choice to look at certain things. The things I want to see are it just that just means paying attention to the things that I'm already looking at. That means when I see an article listed, I click on that article. That means when I see a book in the bookstore, I I pick up that book. When I walk into a bookstore, when I walk into a bookstore, the sections and the books don't suddenly rearrange themselves based on what they think I'm looking for. I go to the sections you know, I go to the, the section of the books that I want to read. If I want to read a fantasy book, I go to the fantasy section, and they're arranged alphabetically, hopefully. That makes sense. And the same is true for getting online. It's a collection of in- information. It's a database. You get on, you click, you go to the sections of the things you want to read, and they appear chronologically, and you click on them. But we moved away from this, where now things are supposedly appearing for different reasons. They say either, oh, it's tailored to what we think your taste is. Again, it's like my record collection doesn't rearrange itself when I walk in the room based on what it thinks I want to hear. I have to choose. I mean, my records aren't in any order, so it's just chaos. But it doesn't continually rearrange itself. Um, but this idea that, oh, you know, the things that you see online are now appearing to you both based on what they think you want to see and then this other very nefarious 
explanation, which is, this is the top story. Oh, this is the most popular. This is what's hot. You know, you see these different words for it, and it's very suspicious. Because you'll see things that, for example, don't seem to be popular, that will appear before other things. And you'll see things from two days ago that will appear before something else. There's, it's not chronological at all, and it's disorienting, and it makes you feel like you're missing things, and you are. And I, I find that very suspicious. And I, you know, as I've made abundantly clear, I'm not attracted to conspiracy theories, and I don't see everything as some sort of Machiavellian plot. But this is one example where I just it just does not seem good. It seems like an easy cover for manipulating what you see and how you see it. And it's not just that things don't appear chronologically. They're even making it difficult to, to, to use a chronological setting. Like, the chronological setting is very rarely the default anymore. It's something that you actually have to make an effort to use each time you do it. And even then, it, you can't completely trust it. Even then, it seems to be flawed in some way. And I find that very disturbing. I find this movement away from chronological consumption of information into something that doesn't really have a clear-cut explanation and seems to be based on arbitrary... I mean, I guess the most positive way I could look at it is that these are arbitrary parameters, that it truly is just based on other things you have clicked on, or that it is truly based on some sort of parameter of popularity. But it doesn't seem to be that way. There seems to be something else going on. It does seem curated. And I don't have any more to say on it because I have no more insight into it. I can only go with my gut, with my intuition, that there's something wrong. Why would we move away from chronological, you know, displays? You know, why, why would that be something that we needed to change now? The internet seemed to be functioning fine with a chronological system up until, you know, eight years ago. And it's also paralleled an increase in online censorship. An increase in the politicization of tech companies. And I guess that's why I can't help but see some sort of nefarious intent. It makes it easy to manipulate what you see when you don't even know how or why you're seeing what you're seeing. And some of it seems to deliberately, some of it seems to be designed to deliberately upset you. <laughs> you know, it's, some of it seems to show you things that are designed, you know, as much as it says it's tailored toward things that you would want to see, which isn't good either. Nothing should send you down a tunnel of things you already like and agree with. Your taste should be continually challenged. Your thoughts should be continually forced to contend with things that you might not otherwise think about. So I don't like that idea either, that it's just like, oh, based on the things you like, we thought you'd like this. I don't like that either, because that sends you down a tunnel of just, it's a feedback loop. But uh, the other side of that is just um, 
that they seem to be showing you things that deliberately upset you because often the things that it recommends to me are not things they're not things that I that my the, the things that I view would never you know let me try to phrase this the right way um the things that I, that the system does think that I like or would like don't seem to correlate with some of the things that it shows me or the way that it shows them to me. And it feels silly to talk about this, but this is having a massive influence on our individual and collective psyche. The fact that this stuff is a simulation of the collective our collective consciousness the fact that you know social media is a simulation of collective consciousness means that it is having a massive impact on our individual psyches as they connect to the collective consciousness and of course as the word implies you know the collective psyche you know the collective consciousness naturally impacts the collective psyche you know so uh, it troubles me i find it troubling and uh, the fact that those two thighs have seemed to start rubbing against each other at an even quicker rate, and there seems to be even more agitation. There seems to be even more redness, more sweat. I don't feel it's totally unrelated from the way that information is now presented to us and that we are consuming it almost exclusively this way. You know, I'm not, you know, and that's the thing, too, is if this is somehow, if I'm noticing some sort of negative impact, and I'm not anti-social media at all, like, I like the format of connecting with people you know on this collective space, in this collective space. I like that. I've always liked that. I've always liked that. But I think there are some of these little details, you know, the move away from chronological ordering and into these inexplicable, whatever they are, they're inexplicable. Even when you get an explanation for it, the explanation doesn't entirely match up with what you're seeing. And that creates more dissonance. It's just, it seems to be disruptive and disorienting. And being disrupted and disoriented will agitate you individually, but when it's happening to everybody, and people are seeing things that upset them on top of being disoriented and agitated it just it can't go well and it's you know i i can't help believe but believe that it's played a large role in compassion and kindness being sacrificed and it'd be one thing if kindness and compassion were simply forgotten but the fact that there's an active movement to demonize kindness and compassion as a tool you know, of their enemy. That just tells you something is horribly wrong. And I don't, I don't want to end on that note. <laughs> It'd be fun to end on that note. It'd be fun to end on some warning. Take warning. It'd be fun to end on that note and just say, be scared. Be scared. Take warning. The, the, the second they took away our chronological ordering, you lost your mind. We all lost our mind when they took away chronological ordering. 
When they took away chronological ordering, that's when you decided to smash that black widder with a barbell, but you broke your favorite bowl. And now you're telling people it didn't even break. You can't even admit the, the bowl broke. <laughs> Stay entertained. You know, I, that's what I'm doing. I'm trying to keep myself entertained. It's one of the reasons I do these. Um, it's, uh, you know, I'm st- and also stay entertained, stay kind, and stay compassionate. And I, I mean that wholeheartedly. Preserve that. Just like how they passed the Olympic torch. That, you know, I don't know if this is true, but, you know, they always said, the Olympic torch never goes out because they pass it from torch to torch. Like the guy runs with the lit torch and then lights the next torch or something like that. That's how I remember it. That's how kindness and compassion are. They're the Olympic torch of our species. And it's chronological. You can trace it. We know who the last person who lit that torch is. You know, it's chronological. It's not just random torches appearing here and there. Although we're about a f- we're five days away from that. We're five days away from looking out the window and just seeing random torches appearing out in front of your house. But, you know, keep things chronological. Stay kind. Stay compassionate. Stay entertained. Keep your sense of humor. That's another one of those things that is a, a dead giveaway that something is wrong if you find that somebody is completely humorless. And don't hate them for it. It can be difficult. Like, if somebody doesn't have the same sense of humor as you, it's very easy to misinterpret that as being humorless. Oh, because they don't laugh at the same things I laugh. They have no sense of humor. No, people have different senses of humor. But there is an epidemic of humorlessness. And it's not just people having a different sense of humor. There is an epidemic of humorlessness. And it's obvious. I don't need to even tell anybody about it. It's so obvious. You'll come across it. It may even be impacting you. If you've listened to this show and and you say, oh, this guy's so serious about everything, then it very well might be impacting you too. But preserve that. You know, preserve these torches. Honor Jerry. If, if for no other reason, stay kind and compassionate to honor Jerry, that innovator who showed kindness to another caveman down the river, who showed compassion, and he lit that torch, just like another caveman lit the first fire, just like he figured out, you know, rub those sticks, rub those legs to get, no, it was rubbing sticks. Because it turns out rubbing thighs together it doesn't create fire. It just creates agitation. And that agitation leads to people starting fires. But just in the same way that a caveman did rub sticks together and start, you know, the first man-made fire, you know, somebody started a very different type of fire, another source of light when he showed compassion for somebody. And so honor Jerry, that caveman, He's everyone's uncle. Uncle Jerry. Uncle Jerry the Compassionate. That's what we'll call him. 
this land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children 